OMG, we have to find a really good name for our secret Defense Against the Dark Arts Club. How about we do the Defense Association? DA for short. No, that's really stupid. Let's do Dumbledore's Army. This podcast is the property of the Half-Blood Princesses. I'm Demi. I'm Jess. The story will begin in a flourish. Welcome everybody to episode number 12. We are so excited to be back again. Yes, we are. And if you don't follow us on social media, what are you doing? We are on Twitter and Instagram at HB Princesses Pod, and you can find us on Facebook and YouTube by searching the Half Life Princesses at Harry Potter Podcast. We also have a voicemail line, so leave us a message at 412-228-5435, and we will feature it in a future episode. And now, Jess, what is the topic for episode 12? Our topic is Dumbledore's Army. So excited for this one. Now, let's get into our quote. It's time for Quick Quotes Corner. The quote for Dumbledore's Army comes from Chapter 30 of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows called The Sacking of Severus Snape. This passage comes from the rumor requirement right before the Battle of Hogwarts. You're underage, Mrs. Weasley shouted at her daughter as Harry approached. I won't permit it. The boys, yes, but you? You've got to go home. I won't. Jenny's hair flew as she pulled her arm out of her mother's grip. I'm in Dumbledore's army, a teenager's gang, a teenager's gang that's about to take him on, which no one else has dared to do, said Fred. Dumbledore's army started off as a fun group for teenagers to meet, bond, and learn defensive magic, not just to pass the OWLs, but to discover how to face the very real threat of Voldemort and his followers. It also started off as a play on words, a verbal slap against the Ministry, as the Ministry was afraid that Dumbledore would form an army to fight against them. However, moving from Order to Deathly Hallows, we see that the threat of Voldemort isn't just on the horizon, it's here and now, and it's gotten serious. As they grow and mature, the members understand this, and are the ones who make the name Army literal, as they are willing to lay down their lives for the greater good. We see this here with Ginny, who is so desperate to fight. Fred's words are true as well. Unlike the Order, the army turned into a more mobilized force of action, while the Order does what they can to thwart Voldemort with very little casualties. Also, now with Dumbledore gone, the name ironically does show that they're fighting for him. For the wizard who battled against Voldemort by finding out about his past to help Harry kill him. As the leader, Harry's Dumbledore's man through and through. One of my favorite things about Dumbledore's army is that it shows that the other houses can all come together for a common goal that's very important. Because we see that the army comprises of Gryffindors, Hufflepuffs, and Ravenclaws. And that shows that this is a cause beyond their individual qualities of their houses. And to fight Voldemort and fight for good, you have to set that aside and set the house's division aside to really come together and make a difference and win. Oh, look, Paul is flying toward us. What if we get an owl on our side in Dumbledore's army? Oh, wait, she's just dropping off our fun facts. Hey, it's Polly, our owl. She's flying in with the fun facts. Da 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 da! We're talking about the DA! Yay! 
Let's dip into Dumbledore's Army fun facts. Dumbledore's Army, or the DA, was a group of students who were trained by Harry Potter in magical combat during the 1995-1996 school year at Hogwarts. Hermione proposed the idea for the organization and the name was chosen by Ginny. They held a meeting with prospective members on October 5th at the Hogshead Tavern in Hogsmeade and met in the Room of Requirement for subsequent training sessions. The members of the group signed a parchment that was jinxed by Hermione. If anyone revealed what was happening, they would suffer a serious attack of pimples on their faces. Yuck. To communicate between meetings, Hermione cast a protein charm on the fake galleons the DA used. Protean means able to readily assume a different form, which is what this complex spell does. The word also comes from Proteus, a sea god from Greek mythology who could change his shape rapidly. Back to the coins. With the Protean charm cast on them, the numbers on the members' coins could change when Harry changed the numbers on his coin. This allowed him to reflect the date and time of the next meeting, and when the date changes, the coins grow hot. Hermione explained, On real galleons, that's just a serial number referring to the goblin who cast the coin. Also, the galleons were inconspicuous because everyone carries around money. The Ravenclaws were impressed that Hermione could cast this charm as its N-E-W-T level. Clearly, no one could cast this at fifth year level, but here's Hermione proving them wrong. Hermione got the idea from Voldemort's use of the Death Eater's dark marks as a means of communication. Members of the DA learned a variety of spells, jinxes, and charms, including Expelliarmus and the Patronus charm. Neville and the Creevy brothers also excelled, thanks to Harry. Sadly, DA meetings ended in April of that school year. We'll talk more about why in our Tales of Magic and Mischief segment. Now, let's talk more about the DA's activities in the rest of the books. Since Umbridge left at the end of Order, Harry concluded that there was no need to continue DA lessons during Half-Blood Prince. Interestingly, though, during that book, Draco Malfoy did copy the notion of Hermione's DA coins to enchant coins of his own as a means of communication for himself and Madame Rosemurda. In Deathly Hollows, the DA reformed as a resistance against the regime of Snape and the Caros at Hogwarts. The Caros chained up first years, made students practice the Cruciatus curse, taught students that muggles were like animals, and beat up students who stood up to them. Seamus' injuries rendered his face unrecognizable, and Neville, Ron observed, had been used as a knife sharpener. At first, Neville, Ginny, and Luna shared the leadership role, but then Luna was kidnapped, and with Ginny unable to return after Easter, it all fell to Neville. With everyone being watched at school in the early weeks of the regime, it made sense for Neville, Ginny, and Luna to use the fake galleons to communicate. They snuck out to graffiti walls with phrases like, Dumbledore's army, still recruiting. Later, with the Caros stepping up the torture of DA members like Michael Corner, who was caught releasing an imprisoned first year, they still used the coins. Luna used hers to let Neville know she was safe, and Neville used them to call the other DA members to Hogwarts as Harry, Ron, and Hermione returned. Neville, Ginny, and Luna also attempted to steal the fake Sword of Gryffindor out of Snape's office, for Harry. The DA also participated in three battles in the Second War against Voldemort. Battle of the Department of Mysteries, June 18, 1996, Battle of the Tower, June 30, 1997, and Battle of Hogwarts, May 1st through 2nd, 1998. Just for fun, let's take stock of all of the members. Abbott, Hannah, Brown, Lavender. She was wounded during the Battle of Hogwarts. Belle, Katie, 
Bones, Susan. Susan had heard about Harry's Patronus from her aunt Amelia Bones, and that's how she joined the DA. Boot, Terry. Chang, Cho. Corner, Michael. Creevy, Colin. He was killed during the Battle of Hogwarts. Creevy, Dennis. He was a second year during Order of the Phoenix, so he shouldn't have been able to go to Hogsmeade and visit the Hogshead, much less do the spells. Edgecombe, Marietta. Finch Fletchley, Justin. Finnegan, Seamus. Goldstein, Anthony. Granger, Hermione. She was wounded in the Battle of the Department of Mysteries. Johnson, Angelina. Jordan, Lee. Lee operated an underground radio broadcast called Potter Watch to speak out against the ministry under the Death Eaters. Go, River. We stand you. Longbottom, Neville. He suffered a broken wand and a broken nose in the Battle of the Department of Mysteries, but was the only student left standing besides Harry. He also killed Nagini during the Battle of Hogwarts. Lovegood, Luna. She fought in the Battle of the Department of Mysteries. She was the only non-Gryffindor DA member to do so. Macmillan, Ernie. He considered this to be the most important thing they were doing this year, not accepting OWLs. Patil, Padma. Patil, Parvati. Potter, Harry. Smith, Zacharias. Spinnet, Alicia. Thomas, Dean. Weasley, Fred. Fred was a guest on Potter Watch and, sadly, was killed during the Battle of Hogwarts. Weasley, George. He was wounded in the Battle of the Seven Potters. Weasley, Jenny. She was wounded in the Battle of the Department of Mysteries. Weasley, Ron. He was wounded in the Battle of the Department of Mysteries. I found this out and it's super funny. So Rita Skeeter wrote a tell-all book about the DA called Dumbledore's Army, The Dark Side of the D-Mob, which was published in July 2014, according to Pottermore. Grab your wands, because it's time to fight, or at least learn how to, as we dive into the DA's founding and training sessions in Order of the Phoenix. Now, it's time to dive into the book topic of the week, for tales of magic and mischief. One evening, Harry heads back to the common room after detention with Umbridge and puts his hand in a bowl of strained and pickled Mertlap tentacles that Hermione offers him. Hermione tells Harry that they need to do something about Umbridge's terrible teaching methods. She says they need to learn defense against the dark arts themselves. Ron complains he and Harry are behind and she wants them to do extra work. Here comes my favorite Hermione line. But this is much more important than homework, said Hermione. What is the significance of this Hermione quote in regards to her character? I think this is a point in the book where Hermione is really starting to notice that there are more important things in school. And with everything going on in the previous year with the Charizard tournament and at the end when Voldemort came back and being best friends with Harry, she's realizing that, wait, I don't care if I get in trouble. I need to learn defensive magic because I know what's out there. Despite of the other characters not really believing Harry, she dies and she realizes how important it is. I completely agree. There comes a point in your life where you have to get out of your childhood bubble and look around, and it also shows that she's growing up here. Hermione talks about how this is about preparing for what's out there and defending themselves. This endeavor can't be achieved by just looking up jinxes in the library. They need a teacher, and she suggests Harry. Ron agrees with her. How would you feel if you were Harry? 
I would honestly react the way Harry does because he's not in the best situation. People don't believe him when he says Voldemort's back. He just had a terrible detention with Umbridge. And being under a lot of stress at this moment and being told, hey, teach me defensive magic, I kind of be taken aback too and not want to go down that path. Yeah, I agree. And I think that Harry is still feeling guilty about Cedric's death and he doesn't want people to die like Cedric. And so in teaching people defensive magic... It teaches them to fight, which they might. And Harry doesn't want more people to die at Voldemort's hands. And what if he does it wrong? You know, what if he screws up and they don't know how to do a spell and then they get killed? So this is a very real worry for him. Harry says that he's not a teacher. Hermione pushes, saying that Harry's the best in the year. He beat her in Lupin's class, and plus, he's done a lot. Ron ticks off Harry's many accomplishments and victories against Valdi over the years. Harry replies angrily that it was luck. He didn't know what he was doing, didn't plan it, did what he could think of, and always had help. He's not brilliant at defense against the dark arts. He explains that facing Voldemort is not as easy as spell memorization. The whole time, you're sure you know there's nothing between you and dying, except your own, your own brain or guts or whatever. Like you can think straight when you know you're about a second from being murdered, or tortured, or watching your friends die. They don't teach that in the classroom. He says that his friends are sitting there acting like Harry's so clever and Diggory was dumb. It could have been Harry dead if Voldemort didn't need him. What's the significance of this outburst? Why doesn't Harry want to teach? Harry's been through so much trauma that I honestly think he's at the point that you just mentioned before, not wanting to put anybody else in Voldemort's harm's way like this. And he has every right to explode like this because... You're right. He is still traumatized by Cedric's death. And if he teaches his best friends like Ron and Hermione to fight, then they could be in the same position. He doesn't want that to happen. Ron tries to soothe Harry, saying that's not what he meant. And Hermione says they need Harry so they know what it's like facing Voldemort. This is the first time she says the name. Why does Hermione say it here? Because it's a way to really show how serious she is about it. Everybody who's afraid of Voldemort and not willing to stand up to him says, you know who or he who must not be named. But Hermione saying the name really shows that she's ready to take this on. Exactly. It shows that she is not afraid anymore. She may be a little bit, but with time and with practice, she can get good and that fear can lessen if Harry decides to teach. Harry sits down and nods in agreement to Hermione's request that he'll think about it before he heads up the stairs to his dormitory with Ron. Hermione doesn't bring up the topic of defense against the dark arts until two weeks later while she, Harry, and Ron are in the library on a wild, blistering evening at the end of September. When she asks Harry if he thought any more about teaching them defensive magic, Harry thinks back to the past two weeks and his thought process. Sometimes he thought the idea was completely insane the way that he did on the first night when Hermione brought it up. But other times, Harry found himself thinking about the spells that helped defend himself against the Death Eaters and dark creatures, and he found himself subconsciously planning lessons. It's very clear here that half of Harry wants to run away from this whole plan, and the other half wants to go for it. Where do you think this hesitation stems from? I think the hesitation stems from what we were talking about before, that if he teaches incorrectly or if the kids don't remember what they learned, then they could really seriously get hurt. 
but he does have the ability to teach, right? He's been through so much and he knows it. He knows these students in his class need help because of Umbridge. And so that's why he's really deciding towards it. Yeah, and I think the fact that he's subconsciously starting to plan lessons really shows that deep down this is something that he wants to do. But because of the things we talked about before with the way the wizarding world isn't seeing him as telling the truth and all the trauma that he's been through, that that's kind of clouding his thought process. But at the same time, it's starting to shine through a bit. Since it appears that Harry's not going to go off like a dong bomb like the first time, Ron feels more comfortable to pipe up and tell Terry that he agreed with Hermione all along that it was a good idea. Harry restates his point that it was mostly all luck, but Hermione isn't having this. She says that Harry can do things that even grown wizards can't, and there's no point for Harry to think that he's not good at defensive magic because he is. To emphasize her point, she says that Harry was the only one who was able to completely throw off the Imperius curse the year before, and he's able to produce a Patronus. Do you think that Harry may be a bit shy about being so advanced at defensive magic? All his life, he's been put on a pedestal, and this is just one more thing. He definitely is shy. Because when he first entered the wizarding world, he learned that he was the chosen one, the boy who lived, and he was so confused. He was like, what do you mean? Like, I've never been exposed to this. He doesn't like fame. He doesn't like to be recognized like that. And by teaching this class, like, he will be recognized like that. And also... You know, he is just a teenager. He doesn't want to be the person who has the world on his shoulders. And he's just saying, oh, I'm so lucky because this and this and this happened. Like, he doesn't want to be responsible for this. I completely agree with all of that. But Hermione is getting Harry to cave a little bit and starting to get him to agree to this. When Hermione prompts Harry again, asking if he'll teach them, Harry says, you and Ron meaning he's just going to teach both of them. But Hermione gets a little anxious and says that she thinks that Harry should teach anybody who wants to learn because it's about defending themselves against Voldemort. Harry isn't happy about this because he's like, who's going to want to learn from me? Because to use his words, I'm a nutter, remember? But Hermione says she thinks that he'd be surprised of how many people would like to hear what he has to say. There's a Hogsmeade trip the first weekend of October, and she suggests for them to spread the word and find anybody who's interested to learn and meet them in the village. Now the plan is in motion. How would you feel if you were Harry now, who basically just committed to this? I feel blindsided because Hermione asks him to teach them, meaning her and Ron, defensive magic. And he's finally agreeing to this because he's like, well, you're my best friends, and if you're going to come with me, then it makes sense that you know this. But then Hermione's like, oh, but you have to teach more people. And he's like, what do you mean I have to teach more people? Like, he's going to be on a pedestal once more, and he's not happy about this. But since he's Harry Potter and he wants to help others, he decides to go with it. Exactly, and I think it's important to note here that when Hermione said that she thinks it's important for him to teach the people who want to learn, Harry doesn't have an outburst. So it's clear that Harry's really starting to realize that this is something that he can do and he's willing to do it. Now let's fast forward to the Hogsmeade trip. Harry, Ron, and Hermione go into the village and they make their way to the Hogshead, which is a very sketchy pub. It's a small dingy and very dirty room that smells strongly of what could be goat. The bay windows are so encrusted with grime that very little daylight spills into the room, which is lit by stubs of candles that are sitting on rough wooden tables. What appears to be an earthy floor is actually stone, this covered with what seems to be the accumulation of the filth of centuries. 
I think the Hogshead is a perfect place for the establishment of the club because it's a sketchy place and they're doing something sketchy under Umbridge's nose. What do you think? I definitely agree. It's like going into an alley and making a deal with the devil or something, like in fictional stories, you know? It's like, oh, well, if you're going to make a deal with the devil or you're going to do something bad, it might as well be in, like, a really crappy-looking place, like... You know, and it reminds me of the whole thing where Dumbledore talks about how Trelawney has the interview with him in the Hogshead. I'm like, wow, that's a dingy place to meet a divinization teacher. Divination! Divination! I can't say that correctly. Divinization is way better, though. It honestly is. But yeah, like, that place is so gross. Like, no one should want to go in there. Like, it's disgusting. I would feel like I'd have to take a shower after I left. Yeah, literally same. So when the trio walks in, they go over to the barman and get three butterbeers. The barman is Aberforth, which we don't know at the time, but I think it's really funny that they think they're doing something completely undercover, but that's literally Dumbledore's brother. And then also in the pub is what appears to be a witch under a thick black veil, who is Mundungus Fletcher. So the trio isn't as undercover as they think they are. Ron says he's always wanted to try fire whiskey and thinks that bloke, meaning Aberforth, would give them anything. Hermione thinks this is a terrible idea and points out that Ron is a prefect, but at the same time, if I was going all out and being super shady and trying to organize a defensive magic club, I'd want to be lit too and, like, drink fire whiskey for the first time, wouldn't you? Yeah, I mean, honestly, like, it looks like this guy doesn't clean up after anybody. He doesn't care who's in there. Like, I'm sure Aberforth would serve him fire whiskey. So once the trio sit down, Harry asks Hermione how many people are coming, and Hermione says a couple people. Well, her couple people turns out to be 25 extra people in total, 28 including them. And Harry's like, what the hell? So Fred is like, all right, butterbeer's for everybody, and he gets everybody butterbeer, but shouts for everybody to basically pay for their stuff too, because come on, the twins aren't going to pay for everybody's stuff. And then everybody sits down. So Harry goes into panic mode because he wasn't expecting this many people. So obviously he's freaked AF. So how would you feel if this many people showed up for this meeting? I'd feel very overwhelmed. Like, honestly, I would just think people were there to hear my story about last year in the Goblet of Fire and that they don't really want to fight. They just want to hear his side of the story because they're like, oh, if he's saying that Voldemort's back, then we need to hear his testimony. I don't know if we want to fight. And then if they hear the testimony and they like it, they might agree to fight. But at the same time, like, 25 people? I think maybe 10 people would show up at the most, you know? It's like, it's a whole class. Like, a big class, too. Exactly, and the point you made about thinking these people only showed up to hear Harry's story turns out to kind of bubble to the surface in just a second. Hermione addresses the group and tells everybody her vision, that she wants to learn defensive magic because Voldemort's back. Obviously, when she says Voldemort's name, everybody freaks out. And Hufflepuff dude, Zachariah Smith, is like, how do we know Voldemort's back? And goes off on his, like, stupid tangent. And Ron is basically like, who TF are you? And he introduces himself as Zacharias Smith, the most evil Hufflepuff around. <laughs> and so then he starts to go off about how, like, they had the right to know if they're going to fight. They had the right to know, like, if Voldemort's back and what makes Harry think Voldemort's back. And Hermione basically tries to, like, 
misdirect this and says that that's not the point of this meeting but harry says this is fine and it's okay because like you said this dawns on him now that this is why all these people came Harry basically tells Zacharias that he's not here to talk about what happened last year. Dumbledore told everybody his side of the story and the truth at the end of the school year, and he's not here to talk about Cedric's death. So anybody who wants to find that out and isn't respecting Harry can just clear out. How would you feel if you thought all these people turned up to have you teach them defensive magic when really the whole reason why some of them showed up is to learn about what happened last year? I'd feel really irritated, to be honest with you. I'd be like, do you people have anything better to do but speculate about what happened? Like, honestly, if you're going to Hogsmeade, you should have fun, you should blow off some steam. Like, yes, you might want answers, but they were already given to you. And they all think Harry's a nutter, like he said, but he really isn't. And they'll see that at the end of the book. Exactly, and I honestly think that this was bound to happen. You think of any celebrity, right? If something happens to them, they want to hear it from them, even though the media is covering a bunch of stuff. They want to hear it right from their mouth. And Harry has also been through such trauma, as we talked about several times already, and he doesn't want to talk about this in a pub that's sketch with, like, all these people. So I'd be super pissed off, too. But nobody leaves. So this just shows that even though they came for the tea and they didn't get it, they're still not going to leave. So various members of the group start to pipe up with things that Harry had done and basically recites things that happened in the other books. Harry saved the Sorcerer's Stone, killed the Basilisk in the Chamber of Secrets with the Sword of Gryffindor. He can produce a Patronus. He did all those things during the Triwizard Tournament and he got rid of the Dementors over the summer. Harry's still modest, as we've seen, and says that he's had help with these things, and a lot of it was luck. But Zacharias is like, so you're trying to weasel out of helping us? And Ron is like, here's an idea. Why don't you shut your mouth? And so Zacharias continues to go off that Harry's saying that he can't really do these things, and they all showed up for him to help them learn defensive magic. And this is where the twins put Zacharias in his place. Fred tells Zacharias that's not what Harry said, and George asks Zacharias if he wants them to clean out his ears, and he pulls out this long, unlethal-looking instrument from the Zonko's bag. And George also says, Or any part of your body, really. We're not fussy where we stick this. Which is just absolutely fantastic. I love the twins here. The twins are so funny, but... He has a point, though. If Harry's just going to sit there and say, oh, it was luck, then people aren't going to want him to teach them anything because it's almost like he's bluffing, which, of course, he's not. But Harry is so modest that it looks that way. So everybody basically agrees to pursue with this. And the next topic of discussion is how often to have meetings. It's agreed to have meetings once a week as long as they don't conflict with Quidditch practices. Then the conversation turns to where the meetings will be held. There's some suggestions like the library and an unused classroom, but these don't prove to be good options. So Hermione tells everybody that they'll spread word once they have a time and place for the first meeting. Then Hermione pulls out parchment and a quill and looks very anxious and adjusts the group. I, I think everybody should write their name down just so we know he was here. But I also think we all ought to agree not to shout about what we're doing. So if you sign, you agree not to tell Umbridge or anybody else what we're up to. Fred reaches for the parchment and cheerfully signs up, but it's clear that many other members of the group are hesitant. 
Zacharias is one of them and says that Ernie will let him know when the first meeting is. But Ernie's hesitant too because he's a prefect. But Hermione says that she and Ron are prefects too and she's not going to leave the list lying around. After that, no objections are raised. And Harry notes, There was an odd feeling in the group now. It was as though they had just signed some kind of contract. So let's talk about this sign-up sheet. I think it's important for them to have a sign-up sheet because that shows solidarity and a common goal. If you're committing to something, you sign up for it. All clubs have that. But for something like this, a defensive magic association, I feel like me as a Hufflepuff, like I probably really sit back and think about, is this something I want to put my name down for that I'm really ready to commit to? And honestly, I'd see the importance in it and sign up, but I feel like I would hesitate. How would you react to the sign-up sheet situation? Well, my secondary house is Gryffindor, so I'd sign up right away because I'm kind of impulsive like that. If I hear something I like and I know it's good and I feel it in my gut, then I'll do it. Yeah, I can see that you're really spontaneous. But looking at Zacharias, he totally sucks. But as a Hufflepuff and Ernie too being hesitant, I feel like that really brings out Hufflepuff traits to really like look into something before jumping on it. So I can't really blame Zacharias for hesitating once they kind of convinced him to be on board. It's time to talk about the first meeting. Dobby tells Harry about the room of requirement, and Harry and crew spread the news about the time and location of the first meeting. The trio leave the common room with the Marauder's map, avoiding Filch, Mrs. Norris, and Umbridge as they head up to the room of requirement. When they get to Barnabas the Barmy, Harry walks past the wall three times and thinks about what he needs somewhere to learn to fight and practice, where others can't find them. Harry opens the door into a torchlit room with walls lined with bookcases and silk cushions on the floor. The shelves at the far end of the room contain sneakoscopes, secrecy sensors, and a faux glass that looks like the one in fake Moody's office. How would you react coming into this room? It's literally dope as hell. Like, this is so freaking cool. Like, the room itself is cool, but to, like, need it to practice defensive magic, and the room basically, like, provides you with everything. Like, you don't even have to pay for it. It's not like Harry is like, oh, I need to go to Diagon Alley and buy a bunch of books and, like, defensive objects and stuff. Like, this room just provides it all. Like, when somebody has to buy something or need something, why don't they just go into the room requirement? You don't have to buy anything again. Yeah, and to be honest, the room is really smart, too. I mean, if you think about all the books that are on the bookshelf, it's almost like the room has an encyclopedia of its own, and it knows what books they need, right, because it provides everything for them. But the cool thing is, and Harry notes, that the cushions are there, so when people are stunned, they can just fall on the cushions and they won't get hurt. And then the dark detectors are super, super cool. Of course, Hermione sinks down with a book as people arrive, and Harry explains the room to them. Every cushion was filled. Harry locks the door and everyone is silent, looking at him. How intimidating is that? Your first class, and look at all these people. How would you feel? I would feel nervous, but for a different reason. I wouldn't feel nervous about them not wanting to learn from me anymore because clearly they're all here. So now I feel nervous about doing a good job and making a good first impression. He won over their approval and willingness to do this, which took a lot of effort, as we just talked about in the Hogshead. So if he screws up, then that won't be good at all. He has a lot riding on this. His reputation about him telling everyone Voldemort is back and people not believing him, but obviously these people do. Like, that's a factor here. And then, like I said, if people leave, you know, 
they're not going to know how to defend themselves. They could get hurt just as easily as if they messed up a spell. So he has a lot riding on this, so I'd be really nervous too. Well, said Harry slightly nervously, this is the place we found for practices, and you've er, obviously found it okay. Cho says it's fantastic, and Fred explains that he and George hid from Filch in a broom cupboard once. Marauder's Map episode, anyone? The broom closet? Ring a bell? Alright, Harry says he's thought about what they should do first, and right off the bat, Hermione has her hand raised. Are we surprised? She has everyone elect a leader, and everyone votes for Harry. Before Harry can continue his lesson, Hermione interrupts, saying they need a name, which would promote a feeling of team spirit and unity. Angelina suggests the Anti-Umbridge League, and Fred suggests the Ministry of Magic Armorons group. I can't with that name. Hermione says they need a name that didn't tell everyone what they were up to so they can refer to it safely outside of meetings. This is when Cho suggests the Defense Association, or DA for short, so no one knows what they're talking about. Yeah, the DA's good, said Ginny. Only, let's make it stand for Dumbledore's Army, because that's the Ministry's worst fear, isn't it? Hermione puts it to a vote, and Ginny's proposal is approved. Hermione pins the paper with their names on the wall and writes Dumbledore's Army across the top in large letters. Let's talk about the significance of the name. It's significant for many reasons. First, like Hermione said, they're all part of Dumbledore's army now. So that's promoting this unity and common goal that they all have now. Also, the name itself can go multiple ways. First, they are Dumbledore's army, so that shows that they are loyal to Dumbledore and what Dumbledore believes and is fighting for. And also, we know that Dumbledore is the only person Voldemort ever feared. So that adds that extra layer that this is Dumbledore's army and we're fighting Voldemort. Exactly, and the fact that Ginny suggested the name shows her loyalty to him. You know, she's like, well, you know, we're Dumbledore students. We're not Umbridge's students. Dumbledore wouldn't allow Umbridge in here if he had a choice, right? So there's that factor. And then there's also the whole thing about the acronym, D-A. Da. Da-da. Do something. That's what I think of when I think D-A. And if you think about it, the other acronyms wouldn't work because Anti-Umbridge League is all, like, we're all together. Like, that's really funny. And then Ministry of Magic are morons group. M-O-M-A-M-G. Mamamg. Like, that's pretty funny, honestly. But the acronym just works. And I love it here. I also love how... It does promote some team spirit, like Hermione was saying, because they all had their input and it was a democracy here. The majority vote ruled. So that's really important because if they don't have a say in what goes on in the club, then they're not going to want to stay. Exactly. And just another point to make that this also goes back to what Hermione first had everybody do, vote a leader, because yes, they're all there to have Harry teach them. But to have Hermione make everybody vote unanimously to have Harry as a leader gives him that authority. Exactly. And she definitely does say that in the book. But if you had to pick another name for this organization, what would you name it? Honestly, I think it'd be cool to name it Fight for Good. Because that's really what they're doing. FFG, Fight for Good. It has a nice ring to it. 
I like that. I also wonder what it would be like if they called it Harry's Army, because the acronym would be HA, so it'd be like, ha ha, we're beating you. Like, that'd be pretty amusing. But Dumbledore's Army is definitely the best choice here. Harry tells them that they'll be practicing Expelliarmus first. It's basic but useful. Zacharias, of course, tells Harry that he doesn't think it'll help them against Voldemort. Harry puts him in his place, saying that he's used it against Voldemort and it saved his life. But if you think it's beneath you, you can leave, Harry said. Zacharias doesn't move to leave. Go, Harry! How would you have handled Zacharias here? I would have kicked his ass out. I'm like, you're disrespecting your teacher? Out you go. And if, if Voldemort kills you, that's your fault. <laughs> no, honestly, I wouldn't do that. I'd probably, like, reprimand him like Harry did and give him the option, like, you better change your attitude or you're out. I agree with what Harry did here. It sounds like he's a professor because professors do that too. They're like, well, if you don't agree with this or if you don't like my class, you can leave, but you still have to pay me for teaching you. So Harry tells them to divide into pairs and practice. Harry's paired with Neville, who is partnerless, sadly. On the count of three, everybody begins. They all have trouble with the charm and can't disarm one another. Neville succeeds only because Harry was distracted at the time. After this, Harry has Neville take turns with Ron and Hermione so he can make the rounds. The twins are playing a prank on Zacharias, making his wand fly out of his hand every time he tries to disarm his partner. Can you blame them? Honestly, no. After Harry works to help the class, he wishes for a whistle which appears on top of the nearest row of books. That's so cool. He blows it to stop everyone and dives back into the fray for another round of assisting people, who improve. He avoids Cho until it appears obvious he's doing so, and when he comes by, Cho causes her friend's sleeve to catch fire and claims that Harry made her nervous. Harry lies and tells her it was good, and she raises her eyebrows, so he tells her it's lousy, but he knows she can do better. A conversation breaks out between Harry, Cho, and Luna. Then Hermione asks Harry if he's checked the time, and realizing it's ten past nine, Harry blows his whistle and they all agree to meet next Wednesday night. So, in regards to this meeting, how do you think it went? I think it went really good. I think Harry's a great teacher because he paired up with Neville, who was partnerless. And then he told Cho she did a good job, even though it sucked, because that's what people do. They tell you you're doing a good job, even if it's not to encourage you. And just to joke around with her, he ended up telling her it was lousy. But then again, like making sure he was going around to everybody and seeing how they all were doing. He was making it a point to check up on everybody individually, which I think is really important for a teacher to do. It really is because this magic is, yeah, it's a basic spell, but you have to do it correctly or it'll fail, just like how Cho set her friend's sleeve on fire. So it's really important that people get it down. And if Harry didn't go around to help people, like the room could be destroyed, like people could get hurt. And so he's also very cautious about that. And people aren't going to improve if you aren't correcting them and being kind. You know, if you're not being kind to people, they'll leave. And he really shows that he has the makings of a good teacher. He really does. It appears here that Harry is working hard to be a leader, but Hermione is taking the reins a little bit because she has them elect a leader, she has them do the name thing. Would you tell her to back off since this is your thing? Honestly, I like that Hermione's doing that because Harry is a teacher, but somebody in that much responsibility 
has an assistant of some kind usually and Hermione is so dedicated with her idea in the first place she's very great at what she does and keeping things organized so I like how Hermione's doing that and being Harry's best friend if I was Harry I'd totally let her do it I agree. I think she's a valuable asset, and instead of dismissing Hermione like some teachers do, Harry embraces her, not because she's his best friend, but also because she has really great ideas. And if you have someone with great ideas, you don't just shut them down. Exactly. So the meetings have been going really well, and we're going to talk about the last one before the holiday season begins. Harry arrives early in the room of requirement for the last DA meeting before the holidays and sees Dobby's handiwork of a hundred golden baubles hanging from the ceiling, each with a picture of Harry that says, have a very hairy Christmas. I love it. It's so cheesy. So Harry frantically cleans up, but when Luna comes in, she sees the remaining ones and tells Harry they're nice. She asks if he put them up. How funny is that question? Like, why would you put something up of yourself? That's such a Luna question, but I feel like that's something that Lockhart would do, not Harry. And Harry and Lockhart are two completely different kinds of people. They're both famous, but they're both completely famous in a different way. I agree. Oh my gosh, it's so funny. I can't with her. She's so odd in the beginning, but she warms up like later in this book and in the rest of the series. So Harry says no and that Dobby did it. She points to the mistletoe above Harry and he jumps out from under it. She tells Harry that it's good thinking because mistletoe is often infested with nargles. That's not why he jumped out from underneath it. How would you feel during this exchange? If I was Harry, I'd be embarrassed, one, from Dobby's decorations, and now two, from this whole mistletoe thing, both from Luna, but he loves Luna at this point. Like, he, like, really is starting to see her as a special person, and we see that as the series goes on, too. So I feel like this is just something he's recognizing as, like, this is just Luna being Luna. I'd be embarrassed, too, but I'd have the same process that Luna was about to kiss me because she's like, oh, mistletoe, because that's what girls do. But we know Luna is odd, and she just sees Harry as a friend. But at this point, Harry doesn't know that, and he's just being cautious. So this was really highly entertaining. So Angelina, Katie, and Alicia arrive, and they tell Harry that Ginny is now the new seeker, and the beaters are Andrew Kirk and Jack Sloper. What a damper on the holiday spirit. Everyone else arrives, and Harry tells them that they're reviewing what they learned as it's the last meeting before the holidays, and there's no point starting anything new right before a three-week break. This makes sense, of course, but Zacharias has to complain in a loud whisper that if he'd known, he wouldn't have come. We're all really sorry Harry didn't tell you then, said Fred loudly. People laugh, and Harry ignores him. I think it's significant here that Harry's ignoring him because sometimes when you have students who are rude, ignoring them for a while gets them to be quiet and actually participate. Harry says they'll practice in pairs with the impediment jinx for 10 minutes and get the cushions and try stunning. Neville improves and after being frozen three times in a row, Harry has him partner with Ron and Hermione so he can make the rounds. When they start practicing stunning, they say that the space was too small for all of them to do this. Half the group observes for a bit and then swaps. What I don't understand here is why they couldn't just wish for a bigger room so they could all practice. Yeah, that's a good point because we know in Deathly Hallows when they take refuge there, the room gets bigger and bigger as more hangings 
appear when more people from the different houses show up like there's a hammock and stuff for like each person and the room gets bigger and then there's a bathroom added on and then the passageway to Aberforth opens up so we see an example of when that does happen so it's weird that it doesn't happen here we just found a plot hole Harry sees that everyone made enormous progress. The meeting ends with Harry telling them that they're getting really good. After the holidays, they'll start doing some of the big stuff like Patronuses. What does the student's progress say about Harry as a teacher and as a leader? It shows that Harry really cares because if you have a teacher that genuinely cares about your student's progress, and wants them to get better and gives them the time and the individual attention, they will get better. And we see from Harry making his rounds that that's a goal of his, to make sure every individual person has the best opportunity they can to improve. And Harry doing that is what's helping them get better. And he's obviously a very kind teacher. He knows what he's talking about. And he creates this amazing learning environment. Exactly. And it's very practical here because they're practicing on each other, real people. So if they were to fight Death Eaters, they know what it's like to work with a person in a pair. After the meeting, Harry finds himself alone with Cho. She cries and they have an uncomfortable conversation about Cedric. It gets kind of strange when she changes the subject, telling Harry he's a good teacher and how she's never been able to stun anything before. She points out the mistletoe over Harry's head. Harry says it's full of nargles and when she asks, admits he doesn't know what they are and that she'd have to ask Luna. Cho comes closer and tells Harry she likes him. Then they kiss. I think it's important here that Cho pointed out to Harry that he's a good teacher. I mean, from Harry hearing that from his crush probably means a lot, but that also solidifies that the students who are learning from him really see him as a good teacher. And knowing that she wasn't able to stun anybody before and now she's able to just reemphasizes that. Exactly, but the situation is so awkward because she's obviously not over Cedric and it almost seems like Harry's a rebound crush to her because she just comes up to him after like a sob fest and kisses him. Like, that's super awkward and if I were Harry, I'd just steer clear of her after that. Yeah, I never really got the whole relationship to VH. It just doesn't make sense. It feels like it's a filler in the whole series. But at least we know that Harry has made an impact on his students. Exactly. So the OWLs are approaching and Harry notes that if it wasn't for the hours that he spends in the room of requirement for the DA, he'd be very unhappy. He starts to feel like he's living for those meetings and he also loves that it's hard work, but he's also enjoying himself. He looks around at his classmates and feels pride at how far they've come. Let's talk about Harry's growth here. He went from not wanting anything to do with this whole plan to really enjoying it and being a great teacher. What does this show about him? I think it shows Harry's true Gryffindor here because when Anita rises, he steps up to the plate to help people and he's brave in doing so. Like, he's fearless in the fact that, like, a whole class staring at him isn't daunting to him. He's able to teach people and do it successfully without a textbook, without a syllabus, just with his own knowledge and his own guts and his abilities. And that really shows that he is a naturally born leader. And while he can stand the power, he doesn't necessarily have to like it. And he doesn't boast about 
what he's doing. He just enjoys himself and is happy that everyone is learning. Exactly. And I also think that he's grown so much with his confidence because it's one thing to teach all these people, but it's something else entirely to see that they are making progress and they're getting so much better. And seeing that from Harry's perspective probably makes him really realize that, hey, I am actually really good at this. I'm good at defensive magic and helping my classmates and friends. And that really boosts his confidence and makes him really excited for these meetings. So in the last DA meeting before Easter, they start Patronuses. A handful of the students are able to produce Patronuses, but a lot of them aren't. And Harry points out that this is a very powerful spell to do, the Patronus charm, and that is completely different doing it in a brightly lit classroom versus when you're really facing a Dementor. Cho tells Harry not to be a killjoy as she watches her silvery swan soar around the room, and she says that they're actually really pretty. And Harry's like, they're not supposed to be pretty, they're supposed to protect you. I cannot stand Cho here. Yeah, honestly, when you're facing a Dementor, you produce a Patronus, you look at it for like one second, see how pretty it is, and then hope to God you don't die and that the Patronus is strong enough to push the Dementor away. Like, you're afraid for your life here. You're not looking at the pretty swan. Exactly. So Harry starts to think aloud that he wishes they had a Bogart to practice because that's how he learned how to fight Dementors. Lupin had him practice with the Bogart. Listen to our last episode for more. And Lavender overhears this and thinks this would be really scary. And she's currently trying to produce a Patronus, but all that's coming out of her wand is puffs of silver vapor. Neville's also struggling and all he's producing is silver smoke and Harry tells him he had to think of something happy and Neville's obviously trying his hardest. We love Neville. And Seamus gets really excited. This is his first DA meeting that Jean brought him along to and he tells Harry that he did it. He did something but when Harry looks whatever Seamus was able to produce has disappeared. Hermione tells Harry that the Patronuses are sort of nice as her silver otter gambles around her. This lesson is a great example of how some students are more advanced than others. Still, Harry is still encouraging those who are still struggling to produce a Patronus. Do you think Harry got some of his learning tactics and teaching style from Lupin? I think he did, especially because Lupin is a very gentle teacher. He encourages everybody. He's kind. He's there for you if you have questions. And Harry definitely is in this lesson. And he also is like Lupin because Lupin reminds Harry of the dangers of, of what he's facing. And he has to be real with his class. Like, this isn't just something that you produce for fun. This is actually practical. And also, if you think about it, it's almost like these people are in a bubble because they're like, oh, a Patronus. And they're just in this room having fun. But really, it's something serious. So while everybody is having a good time learning Patronus charms, the whole mood completely plummets because this is when Dobby comes into the room of requirement and alerts Harry that Umbridge is coming. Everybody bolts and while Harry is running away, Draco hits Harry with the trip jinx and brings him down. He calls for Umbridge who comes around the corner smiling with delight and she says, Excellent, Draco, excellent! Oh, very good. 50 points to Slytherin. I'll take him from here. And she promptly tells Harry to stand, grabs his arm, and drags him up to Dumbledore's office after she tells Draco to get more of them. It's hilarious here that Draco caught Harry 
because they're rivals and he was waiting outside the room of requirement, just like in the next book, how Harry is waiting outside the room of requirement to get him. Their whole like dynamic is really interesting because it kind of shifts from the first book to the end. And I think it offers a lot of character growth for both of them. He's in trouble. He gets to the office and it's full of people. Dumbledore, McGonagall, and Fudge were there with Kingsley and Dawlish positioned on either side of the door like guards. Percy was there ready to take notes of the proceedings. The swine. <laughs> oh my god. The swine. He is a swine. He's like standing there like, ooh, this is fun. As if, you know, Harry, his almost brother, is getting in trouble and he could care less. That made me think of one of the insults on the Marauders map about Snape about advising Snape to wash his hair, the slime ball. <laughs> I bet perfect Percy does his hair every morning. Even the portraits were awake. Umbridge explains that Malfoy cornered Harry, who was heading back to Gryffindor Tower. Fudge asks Harry if he knows why he's here. Before Harry can say yes, he notices Dumbledore shaking his head and says no, and gives nothing away to Fudge. Difficult, very difficult. Umbridge says that she thinks they'll make better progress if she brings in the informant, which happens to be Marietta. How would you feel if you were Harry betrayed like this? To be honest, I wouldn't really be surprised because this entire book, ever since the DA formed, it's been amazing. Everybody's making great progress. Something as good as that, something bad's going to happen. Let's be honest. Nothing's perfect and this was bound to happen. Yeah, exactly. And if you think about it, Marietta was hesitant from the beginning because her mother forbid her to do this. And then shows like, but you're my friend. You have to come. And plus, I have a crush on the teacher. So you have to be my partner. And she's just like, oh, geez. And she's just tired of it, you know. And um, she probably feels like it's her duty to tell Umbridge because of her mother. I blame Cho. Cho sucks. And if Cho didn't join this this group and bring her friend along this never would have happened so i blame cho exactly they don't have any luck getting marietta to talk to fudge she has close set purple pustules across her nose and cheeks that form the word sneak and tries to cover them up with her robes this is hilarious i love hermione's hex work this is the most badass thing hermione does aside from punching draco and it is my favorite this is literally fantastic and honestly like a teenage girl hates acne and for Mary Etta to literally have acne that spells out sneak is so perfect because she's a snitch. She is a sneak and she deserves that to have it written all over her face because she, she snitched on them. I also love how they can't find the antidote or the counter jinx. That's so funny. Umbridge explains that Marietta came to her office after dinner and told her about the meeting, which is when the hex kicked in. Umbridge says a witness in the Hogshead back in October told her about Harry's meeting and his plans for the club. Dumbledore says that this organization was not illegal at the time because it was not until two days later that the ministry decree banning student societies was put into effect. It's only illegal if the meetings happened after the decree, which they don't have evidence of, especially since it appears that Marietta is confunded and won't give anything away. The only thing they heard about was the meeting that night. Umbridge is mad now and tries to shake Marietta. Dumbledore pulls out his wand and Kingsley starts forward. Umbridge leaps back and waves her hands as if they've been burned. How would you feel here if you were Marietta? She's probably thinking she's the biggest idiot for trying to, like, 
do this and turn them in when Hermione was behind the whole sound of she. Like, I would never cross Hermione because she's a badass girl and, like, look at what she did. So, I have no sympathy for Marietta whatsoever. And Marietta probably feels like complete S-H-I-T. Yeah, and honestly, this is crossing the line with Umbridge. Like, Dumbledore is not going to stand there and let Umbridge hurt his students. Like, that's borderline child abuse, and it's ridiculous. And honestly, Marietta kind of deserves it. But I'd still feel bad for her. Oh, come on. You feel bad for everybody. You feel bad for Filch. You feel bad for Marietta. Well, you can feel bad for Baldi, too, one day. Yeah, no. I'm n- I'll never feel bad for Umbridge. That counts for something. Well, everybody hates her, so not really. <laughs> I bet her animagus is a toad if she ever got one. Oh, no, I'm pretty sure it's a cat. She loves cats. I love to see her and her McGonagall in animagi form have a cat bite. That'd be so funny. Anyways, continuing her story, Umbridge explains how everyone at the meeting was forewarned and got away from Umbridge and her squad, but Pansy Parkinson did grab the sign-up sheet from the room. Umbridge hands it to Fudge and Dumbledore takes it from him. Dumbledore gazes at the name at the top and seems almost unable to speak. How would you feel if you were Dumbledore here? Probably overwhelmed with gratitude that these students not only took it upon themselves to learn defensive magic, but also give themselves the name Dumbledore's Army that shows so much loyalty. It really does. I feel so proud of my students. They're also pulling a Dumbledore because they're crossing the line, which Dumbledore always does. So Dumbledore decides to save Harry's butt by admitting that this was his idea, that tonight was their first meeting merely to see whether the students would be interested in joining him. Harry, of course, is powerless to stop Dumbledore's sacrifice. How would you feel if you were Harry here? Like, this is all his fault. I feel guilty, to be honest, but then at the same time, like, after seeing all the progress, obviously Dumbledore is going to figure out a way to set this right. So I wouldn't be too concerned, but I would feel a little bit of guilt about Harry. I feel guilty too, especially because Dumbledore has left Hogwarts so many times throughout the years that this is just one more thing he has to do for Harry. And, you know, if I was Dumbledore, I might be a little bit annoyed that I have to leave now, all because Harry decides to do what Harry does, because Harry thinks he can do anything. So, Fudge says Dumbledore will be escorted back to the Ministry, where he will be charged and sent to Azkaban to await trial. But Dumbledore says he's not going quietly. He hexes Fudge and crew, so they're out cold, and the office is pretty wrecked, too. He tells Harry, McGonagall, and Marietta, whom McGonagall pulled out of harm's way, to act as though no time has passed, and they didn't speak to Dumbledore. The rest won't remember. They'll think they were knocked to the ground. He won't tell McGonagall where he's going, and before Harry can say much, Dumbledore tells him to practice occlumency and leaves with Fox before everyone wakes up. How would you feel after the scene in the office? Would you work to keep the army alive in the coming years or neglect it a little bit like Harry did? I would work to keep it alive because the office scene proves that there's still people out there who disagree or don't believe Voldemort's back. Umbridge and Fudge are taking Dumbledore away for what they believe to be an army that he organized to help fight against this dark power. And so just seeing that should be a reinforcement that we have to keep fighting and we have to keep learning. Because if the ministry isn't going to be behind us and help us fight, we have to take the matter into our own hands. 
Exactly, and if you think about it, all the defense against the dark arts teachers were terrible, except for fake Moody and Lupin. Like, they actually taught you stuff. And so, by discontinuing the army, especially in the sixth year, like, stinks, because they all were friends, they all had fun, and, like, if they had learned a little bit more over the next couple years, like, imagine what the students could do now. Like, there probably would have been less deaths in the Battle of Hogwarts if he had continued the army, which makes me super angry. But we obviously know that in the seventh book, Neville does, so that's, like, 50 points to Gryffindor for Neville. And one more point is that Neville, Ginny, and Luna are the ones who really take the lead. Ginny makes total sense because she came up with Dumbledore's army, and she was in it from the beginning. Luna's obviously very dedicated, and Neville worked his ass off to get better, and he did. So it makes sense that those three would kind of take over as leaders. It really does. So to wrap up, we're going to ask each other a couple questions related to the DA, just for fun. So, Demi, would you join the DA? Definitely. It's really important, and I love to learn, and it's really important to defend yourself in a dangerous situation and to be prepared for a dangerous situation. And in this situation, it's really important to learn defensive magic. So, yes, I would definitely join the DA. How about you? I would join the DA for the same reasons, but also because I love Luna and Jenny, and they would be like my squad. And so we'd have so much fun in those meetings. What spell would you be most eager to learn? So I'd want to learn the Impedimenta Jinx because it's kind of fun watching people freeze. And it also gives you a couple seconds to collect yourself to figure out what you're going to do next. But honestly, the Patronus Charm is my favorite spell of all time. And like, I'm afraid of Dementors. So that would definitely come in handy. I think the Patronus Charm would probably be the most unique spell to learn, but it's very specific, like for Fate and a Dementor. But from the other ones, it's a tie between Expelliarmus and the Stunning Spell because if somebody's trying to attack me, I can disarm them and get away. And same for the Stunning Spell, I can stun them and get away. So I like those two spells, and I think they're very useful for any situation that you can find yourself in. So basically, you do hit-and-run attacks? Not necessarily, because if you think about it, the best thing that you can do in a battle is to disarm somebody so they cannot hurt you, or to put them out of action. Expelliarmus disarms them so they cannot hit you with anything deadly like a Vaticadabra. And the stunning spell basically makes them unconscious until somebody revives them, so they can't do anything either. So I think that they're both very useful for any situation. Yeah, and I guess that's the same thing with impedimenta, because if the person is frozen, it gives you time to move and get away as well. Or at least to get them frozen enough to send a spell flying if someone's at your back. Right. Yeah. So if you had to go into battle, which Death Eater would you choose to fight? Why? I would go after Lucius Malfoy, to be honest, because he just, I don't like him at all. Um, For the reasons of me loving Draco as a character, like he's very controlling and dark and stands for the wrong things. Um, He hurts his family, hurts Draco's character, brainwashes him and everything. And I think he'd be a very dangerous Death Eater because he's been so loyal to Voldemort for so long. So I feel like I would feel satisfied if I took on Lucius and Ron. 
I would feel the same way if I did that, to be honest. And also, it'd be great to shut Lucius up because, like Draco, he taunts you the whole time, which is really irritating. But for me, I mean, I'd probably fight his wife, Narcissa, because she's not as advanced as he is, I don't feel like, and it doesn't seem like she's that tough. So if I were still, like, a novice at this point, like, if I was in the Department of mysteries like i'd fight her because i think i could take her down and then if i had to i'd go after lucius as well because lucius just bothers me the whole series and bellatrix scares me so i wouldn't want to fight her no i wouldn't go anywhere near bellatrix Mm -mm. no but yeah the malfoys i'd take the malfoys especially for dobby i'd fight the malfoys oh yeah yeah all for um fighting the malfoys Thank you all so much for listening. If you have a favorite part of the episode or if you want to answer any of the questions that we pose to one another, please tag us on social media or leave a voicemail on our voicemail line and we'd love to respond to you. Our next episode comes out on February 19th, so stay tuned for that. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this chapter of the Half-Blood Princesses, a Harry Potter podcast. Hedwood's theme and leaving Hogwarts in this episode were originally composed by John Williams and arranged by me. Until next time, mark this page with a magical bookmark.